It's your radio, the future of radio. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight we have Rosemary Chalk, the author of Miss Atissant Witch. Oh, I hope I said that right because that is a mouthful. And the Nisitisset Witch is about a small village in Massachusetts. This is a true story. It's all about witches and the Civil War and curses. And here is Rosemary. Rosemary, welcome to the show. Hi. How are you? I'm glad to be here. Hi. We're awful glad to, to have you here. We think that your book is just going to be fascinating. I have talked to Rosemary earlier today, and I am just so excited. I cannot wait to get my hands on her book, Miss, um, see, I said it right before. Now, Nisitisset Witch. Say that one fast five times. Uh, I've talked with Rosemary earlier about how she came about writing this book. Um, I was fascinated to find that it is based on reality. And Rosemary uh, has been an outdoor person all of her life. She um, played outdoors. She works outdoors. She is a land surveyor, which is, I think, quite interesting. She's a hiker. She's a canoeer. This is one busy lady. And in her travels, she has found that she has the ability to sense certain things when she's on perhaps a piece of land that has something to say. And obviously... Nisitisset Village had, or not village, but had something to say to Rosemary. Rosemary, could you tell us what the effect was for you when you were at this spot? What made you want to tell us about this place, these people? Could you tell us just a hint? Well, I've known about North Village, or Nisitisset Village, it's called both, because it was in North Pepperell. I've known about it my whole life. For probably 200 years, the residents of Pepperell have considered the valley to be haunted. And off and on, I've heard tales of it and didn't pay too much attention to it because I was busy in my life spaying. But uh, a few years ago, I took up writing, and a year and a half ago, I was looking for some kind of subject to write about when suddenly it struck me that I should write about the Nisitisset Witch, the woman who was in... North Village that everybody considers to be the witch that cursed it. The locals have a tall tale that a woman cursed the village and that the buildings burned down and the floods wrecked the dam and uh, people went crazy and died. And The village there is not there nowadays. The only structure that's left is the building on the cover of my book, which is an old, used to be an old one-room schoolhouse, which is now a small house. When you look at the cover of Rosemary's book, it's really quite uh, quite intriguing because you look closely and in the forefront you see the schoolhouse that Rosemary's mentioned. You see uh, a Civil War uh, gentleman, but look close and you see faces. You see Indians, horses. You see the face of the Nisitisset witch. I think I think this is really great artwork. I think our co-host just decided to come home. Oh, <laughs> the, I the door. The guy on the cover of the book, his name is Eb. He's the last remaining survivor of the village. When the village was taken, uh, when the settlers came in, they murdered a tribe of Indians who had lived in that spot for about 6,000 years in harmony with nature. And when they killed the Indian chief before he died, his last words were that... Uh, his spirit would not rest until all the settlers and the sons and the sons of settlers, the settlers were dead. And on the cover of the book is uh, one of my main characters. His name is Eb, uh, and it's not short for Ebenezer. His mother named it for him because of the ebbs and flows of the current of the river. And he's the last remaining survivor of the original settlers, and it's just at the turn of the century. It's early 1900s, 1905. And as he got older... The thoughts of the mist of the Nisitisset River kept um, invading his his mind until the point where he felt that the only place he could die was the place where he was born in the village. So he's heading off down to the village. He He's suffering from a tum- cancerous tumor in his stomach, and he knows that his time is short because it 
came to him the night before in a dream that today was his last day. So he got up and put on his finest uniform that was left from the Civil War because he had a lot of memories of the Civil War also and, and of the action of the spirits, and he's heading down to the river to find a tree to lean up against and and uh, breathe his last breath. Wow. And do you know do you know what year he died? Um, Ab is one of the few things in the book that's fictitious. I made him up. Most of the action and most of the story is based around actual experiences that went on out there that I gleaned from newspaper articles starting around 1900. There's been newspaper articles every few years written about the area. But he was the main character I came up with to try and tie everything together. Okay. Well, you know, he's so realistic that I thought, you know, I just actually thought, wow, Ev is, Ev is for real because your um, expression of who Ev is just makes him alive for me, which I'm sure he will do for everyone who reads the book. Ev will be a real person to all of us, I think. The cover artist I hired, Joe Marcella, he did an excellent job with the cover. When you have it up on screen and zoom in on Eb's face, the details of his face are phenomenal. And the same with the face of the Indian chief. There's expressions on their face. Their faces are very lifelike. And I was just quite happy with how it had turned out. I, the thought of the cover came to me one day when I was out in North Village just wandering around trying to feel some of the vibrations of the area and I came back and I drew a little computer sketch and a little stick man sketch and sent it off to the cover artist who did this rendition we, we worked on it over the course of maybe a month or so and he sent test drawings and I'd tell him more what I wanted and send it back and, and he worked on it a little bit more but basically the concept is totally mine but he, he was my fingers and did the drawing for me because I'm not very good at doing free freehand drawing. I am a land surveyor and do thousands of technical AutoCAD drawings, but there's a big difference between the AutoCAD line work drawing and, and the artistic flow of a drawing. Mm. Um, you you mentioned uh, in about the author, which is the forward to, to the, well, it's my media kit. Um, you say that you want this book to tell a historical tale in a readable way, which I certainly believe that that's, that's um, taking place, but you say a historical tale uh, and that it carries a message. And you being an outdoors person all of your life and seeing Mother Nature uh, at her best and possibly at her worst in ways that have been um, pollution and so on have been done to Earth by people, us, you, me, everyone. Um, can you give us a little idea of, of how you've worked that into your story, how uh, what we've done to the earth and what happens um, next? I didn't intend for any of that to be in the story. I originally started out, I wanted to write a story about the Nisotissa witch, which was a woman who showed up in 1812, who was rumored to be a witch, and in 1820 the locals um, claimed she committed murder and branded her forehead with a W for witch, and she fled the village. But as I started doing the research and started writing more and more, what I felt happened out there was that because of the industry and the goods that they were making, that they poisoned themselves. One of the industries in the village itself that my story is centered on was there was a, a cobbler who made winter boots, and everybody in the valley loved his winter boots. And he made his own felt and lined him with felt. Well, when I research how to make felt, Back in the 1800s, the way you made it was you took um, animal pile and you added mercur mercurious oxide and you created the felt using uh, mercurious oxide and the material that you had. So the felt liners of his boots were all heavily saturated with mercury. And the, some of the historical books I read, because there's several books written in the mid-1800s about the area, talk about the cobbler and how everybody loved his boots and how everybody had two or three pairs of his boots. And so right there I found one source of pollution in the valley, and that was mercury. Another so source of pollution in the valley was the fact that they had a velvet shop there. And when I researched velvet, you can't iron velvet because it crushes the pile. You have to steam it. And so they would have had a steam closet. And when I started researching the colors involved in, in the uh, velvet back then, all of the rich colors, the royal blues and greens and reds, were all made with uh, arsenic and heavy metals. So 
Wow. They dyes in the fabric itself were poisonous. So every time a woman went and opened the steam closet to take a finished garment out before they packed it for shipment, the steam would have wafted out in her face and she would have been inhaling uh, vaporous mercury and vaporous heavy metals and also uh, vaporous arsenic. So I found that to be another source of pollution in the area. And assuming that she had on the cobbler's boots, this woman was getting it coming and going. (laughs) And North North Village was a small village on the Nissitissit River, that's N-I-S-S-I-T-I-S-S-I-T, and it was at the base of a 40,000-acre drainage basin, and it had five other villages upstream plus all of the other farms and activities that were going on. And some of the activities that were upstream were there were woolen shops and there were furniture shops, and all of those each had their particular forms of toxins. And back then, people had no idea of what they were dealing with, so when they were done with something, the only place to dispose of it, of course, was in the rivers, because that seems to be what we've done throughout history in this country. We invaded the country, and we killed the true conservationists, which were the Indians, because they had managed to somehow figure out and live in harmony with nature. And then the very first thing we did was cut down all the trees and start to defile the water. And the Indians who lived in that area worshipped the water, and they treated the area of the mist from the river as sacred, so they wouldn't pollute that area or defile it with animal carcasses or clean fish in it. So they kept it clean and pure, and they managed to live there in harmony and not be sick because they basically stayed out of the quote-unquote buffer zone of the river and did all of their activities of cooking and cleaning and hunting and all of that outside of the river area. So I have the tribe that lived there. This is just my own premise. I have them uh, worshipping the mist of the river, and whenever the it was time for them to die, their spirits would enter the mist of the river and, and would stay there, and, and over time, thousands and thousands of Indian spirits built up in the mist of the river, and they lived in harmony and happy and uh, in conjunction with nature around them, and was, there wasn't any issues until the white settlers moved in, and then they cleaned all the trees out, set up all their mills, all of their farm animals, the pigs and the cows and the goats would all run around in the wetlands and drink from the streams and defecate in the water, and uh, the spirits of the mist became very unhappy because the spot where they thought their their ancestors were living, that they would live for eternity, was polluted and, and uh, unacceptable to them. Well, that would certainly make my day. I mean, here we have our boots on, so that's making us sick. Then we're going to wear our velvet that some poor lady is smelling these fumes, and then... We're going to drink milk from a cow who drinks from the river, which is full of a uh, little bit of this, a little bit of that. Ew. And in some of the historical documents, there was an article written uh, around the turn of the century, the early 1900s, that talks about milk cows suddenly dying out there. I wonder and, why. <laughs> and the fact that they would try to make butter from the cream from the cows, and no matter how hard they churned it, the butter wouldn't congeal and set. So to me, there seems to be some premise that uh, even their farm animals were ingesting stuff out there and weren't quite healthy. It certainly does sound, Chris. Can you tell us us about the witch? Um, Why was she considered a witch? Well, some of the newspaper articles talk about a woman who showed up in 1812, and this is well after the the witch fear in Salem, Mass. That was actually, I think, in the 1600s, so this is 100 and something years later. Um, she showed up, and she was a Quaker, and at the time, Pepperell was all entirely Puritan, and the Puritans had a fear of the Quaker women. They felt the Quaker women could predict the future. So the Puritans saw all Quaker women as being witches. So when the woman moved into the valley, just from the simple fact that she was a Quaker made her suspicious to the locals, and they viewed her as being a witch right off right off the bat. Wow. So, so there was prejudice even. There was uh, prejudice in Christianity even um, in small villages for just a single woman. That's that's really quite interesting so that she was labeled a witch, even though at that point in time she had not um, done anything per se to make them think that other than, than she was a Quaker. 
the small villages were really kind of brutal, and it really depended on the minister that they had, because some of them back then were very self-centered and considered themselves almost demigods. Right in Pepperell, the town in which this is set in, uh, when they went to start the very first church in town, 75% of the people wanted it in one spot, and 25% of the people wanted it in another spot, so the minister declared that the 25% of the people that didn't support him were actually agents of the devil and working for the devil. And this caused such strife in the town that a small civil war erupted, and the state of Massachusetts oh, wow. actually had to come in, and they picked a third site for the church and cited it because um, they wanted the violence to end in the town, and it's kind of ironic that people were dying and killing each other over the site of a church, which is supposed to be something tender and caring. Well, it's supposed to be, but obviously in that particular case it certainly wasn't. And, so uh, the, the ministers back then really abused their power. If a tornado or a hurricane or a bad storm came through and destroyed part of the town, instead of seeing it as a natural occurrence or a natural disaster, the ministers would use that to benefit themselves by telling the people that God was angry with them, that they need to clean up their evil ways and they need to follow his teachings better and that if they followed him more closely that uh, God would smile on them uh, when in fact some of these ministers were just as evil as the devil themselves. I, d I, t I had the opportunity to talk with Rosemary this afternoon on the phone and, and we had a great chat. And one of the things that she told me when she was researching this book was about a friend she has who's a historian there in her hometown. And um, newspaper articles, and Rosemary took these newspaper articles home. And um, can you tell us what happened with those? Yeah, you, uh, I, I need to segue a little more for you probably because I, I found it quite interesting that Rosemary has um, a gift to... Um, Feel things, and things are, are, are can happen around her. And one of the things that happens is uh, the movement of objects, or the spilling, or or whatever. And Rosemary brought these very old historical newspapers home, had them at her computer desk, and what's up? And, 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 I, I, and I read I read through them, and I had a premise in my mind of the character I wanted. I I had wanted to write about the witch, but I wanted to make her a woman of knowledge, and rather than cursing, I wanted to have her make predictions based on her knowledge to the locals, but the locals were, would all guffaw her and not listen to her, and then eventually when what she told them would happen did happen, they viewed it as her cursing them instead of seeing it as her trying to warn them. So I had the articles, the newspaper articles, sitting on my computer table down where the, the keyboard goes, and I read all of them, and it was kind of interesting, but a lot of the rumors started falling apart when I started reading the newspaper articles, and there was a lot of conflict. The newspapers listed two different women as the witch, and also they listed a, a couple that was out there as being witches. And so I sat back and said out loud, I said, oh, I don't think there was a witch. And I no sooner said that than a big cup of iced coffee I was drinking, which I had set up top on the upper shelf, fell over and the coffee ran down onto the spot where the newspaper articles were sitting and the coffee ran all the way around on four sides of the newspaper and, and ran right up to the edges and I couldn't even see any spot between the coffee and the newspapers and I'm freaking out because I had just gotten these historical documents from the town historian at the town hall and I've had them for about five minutes and I'm going, oh my God, I'm destroying them. So <laughs> I reached down and I clutch the newspaper articles and I pick them up and there isn't the slightest bit of coffee on any of the articles, not even on the corners, not even damp or a speck. Yet when I looked down and saw it, the coffee was right up to the edges. So I sat back and I took a deep breath and once again out loud, I said, all right, all right, you exist, you exist. So I went back and I reread the articles more carefully and that's when my main character jumped right out in my face being the, the woman, the Quaker woman who showed up in 1812. Because when I started researching her and I researched Quakers, I found that at the time Quakers were considered friends of the people, and basically the women were more educated than the Puritan women. And she just was uh, seen as being a witch right from the start because the Puritans saw all Quaker women as witches. I just think that is so interesting that it's as if the story was given to you 
uh, from somewhere else. It's as if it's as if you were guided. I feel that way because where I was, I knew about the the the, the story of the witch out there, and I was trying to think of something to write about. And one day when I was driving around through Pepperell, the idea of it came to my came into my head, and once it came into my head, I was possessed by it. I couldn't think of anything else but that. And that's when I went to the town hall and started talking to my friend Sue Smith, who's the historian and also works in the assessor's office. And uh, she pulled out those articles and gave them to me to use as research material. And I brought them home and started reading it. And then from that day on, I was just captivated, a captive writer. I just felt I had no control. The story was building in my head. I couldn't type it as fast as I as I wanted to, it just kept rolling and rolling, and the more research I did led from one thing to another, and the story kept building, and um, it finally came out to be what I think is something probably better than I feel like I'm capable of doing, because I feel like there were other forces involved in it. Well, I'm just, I am just so excited I'm going to visit your website, and uh, I am going to purchase your book, and uh, that website for those of you out there is www dot rosemary chalk c h a u l k dot com and you can purchase rosemary's book there the nissitis at witch and i just think it's going to be so much fun to read uh, we have a, we have a caller uh rosemary that might have a question so i'm going to invite them in hello area code 718 please say hello to rosemary hi rosemary hello hi louie it's carol ann Hey, Carol Ann, hi. I got your um, email. I don't know if you re- uh, responded. I told you what I heard. But... Yes, I did. Okay, I got it right now. Uh-huh. Talk to, Car- uh, talk to Rosemary about this. Uh, Rosemary, remember I told you about my my guest who has a ghost, Mary, who committed suicide in um, the uh, garage? Yes, I do remember that. This, this is Carol Ann who has hi. Mary. And Carol Ann had, had an interesting um, episode today she wanted to share with you. So go ahead, Carol Ann. Hi, Rosemary. Hi. Um, I do EVPs, you know, uh, taping in my house. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I ask questions, and I get a lot of names. Sometimes it's people that I know will recognize the name, and it, it's something for them. But not really messages uh, per se, maybe just... Uh, that they're okay or something like that, but I got today. Now, I, I didn't know anything about you. I happened to read Louie's uh, email. Call me What's-Her-Face at work. Huh? What? <laughs> you can call me What's-Her-Face at work, Carol. Yeah. <laughs> so I went over to your website and watched your tutorial, which is fantastic. It's so dramatic about your book. And it made me think about my EVP today because I had no idea why I got it. I got an Indian name. Uh, A voice said, this is White Tooth, in a very deep voice, kind of weird background, too. Um, Louie said she heard drums in the background. So uh, it just seemed very interesting that it all happened today. So did you, uh, Rosemary, did you run across any name like White Tooth or anything in, in um, your research? I didn't. It was very difficult to find out anything about the Indians because no, nobody really wants to admit what went on. Yeah. When um, uh, when Carol and I sent an update that I had uh, spoke with you and, and that I just thought this was going to be such an exciting show, um, Carol Ann was not aware of the switch from... Um, Anaya to you tonight, and she sent me an email with with an attachment. And she didn't tell me what was in the, in the attachment, other than the fact that she heard a name, and that she wondered um, if this had anything to do with tonight's show and the switch. So I brought up the attachment. I did not hear the name. Everybody seems to hear something different, but what I did hear was Indian drum beats. Wow which was, was pretty cool. So I wrote back to, um, I emailed Carol Ann back, and I told her what I heard and, and asked her what name she heard. And I hadn't looked until just now. Well, what's really and, kind of spooky is that this after, probably when that happened, I was sitting here at the typewriter typing in 
chapter of my new newest book, um, J1T for Just One T, which is a science, sort of a science fiction book, and I have Indian folklore in it, and the fact that all civilization on the Earth has been wiped out except for uh, the spaceship full of settlers that are, were going to go to a new planet, and part of the uh, text that I was typing was um, chanting and drumbeats. Of oh wow! Americans. I got this message about it was early this morning. Could oh, well, it was the it could it could very easily have something to do with the book because I found that I believe there's two power forces behind this, and one is that there's something that wants the story told and the area exposed, and there's another unhappy set of spirits which doesn't seems they they do not want the story told, and I've had all kinds of conflict in trying to get this book out. Um, uh-huh. Several stages of it, I almost threw the book aside out of disgust because uh-huh. I just couldn't get things to click right. Well, if you come across the name White Tooth, remember that I picked it up. <laughs> well, that and is pretty interesting, and I will check that out a little uh-huh. bit more in the, in the local uh, library. The library in town actually has a whole section devoted to the curses and the legend of the witch. Oh, really? That would be a that would be a fun read, actually. Yes. And yes. and uh, Rosemary, needless to say, has uh, put this into a a book form for us um, so that we we can, um, well, I just think it's kind of going to be a fun read, but it's so full of background, so full of information. Um, when, when, I read, uh, when I read this media kit that was sent to me, I am just astounded by everything that you were able to put in this book in such a way, because just reading what you have wrote here, uh, it's interesting. Who would ever think a media kit would be really interesting? <laughs> and I mean, seriously. And and here I am. I'm reading this. I'm thinking, wow, this is pretty cool. And then and then when I look at Rosemary's picture, I, I sort of connect with her because she just has this beautiful smile. And and it's like, I like this lady, you know. And of course, I I like everybody, but I like you. And. <laughs> Well, I All right, feel... I'm going to hang up and let you two girls talk. I'm hey, Carolyn, thanks, and, and hey, Carolyn, I need to have you back with Mary. Do you see this? So I'm going gonna... to send you an email, okay. and we'll set a date, okay? Okay, honey. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye, Rosemary. Bye. Nice talking to you. Same here. So you can you can come and, and listen to Mary, but uh, I am just I am just intrigued by reading this and how excited I am about picking up your book and the things that you have managed to put in here in such a way that it's entertaining as well as informative. Um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of lessons to the book. Um, one is environmental. As a land surveyor, I've worked outside doing land surveying since the 1960s, and I've seen pollution beyond belief more than what the average person sees because the average person not being a surveyor wouldn't gain, have access to some of the sites I've been on. I've been on hazardous waste sites. One of the projects I worked on was in the early 70s was in Lowell, Massachusetts. The Merrimack River runs through it, and at that time all of the cities on the Merrimack River dumped their sewerage raw and treated into the river. So basically the river was an open flowing sewer and the branches of the trees that hung down into the water were covered with toilet paper and tampons and everything. So that, that that's an there. image, huh? Anything that was flushed down the toilet was hanging there on the trees. Really? What what year was this? This was 1971. 71, wow. I mean, that's, that's just the recent past. And some of the other projects I had during surveying was later... In the 70s, I worked for a company that was putting treatment plants in at paper mills. So as a surveyor, you go out and you have to shoot everything as it is. And actually, surveyors are exposed to a lot more toxins and poisons that people would would believe because if an area is a super hazardous waste site, the first people that go into there are the surveyors because they need to know what's out there and where it is and how to deal with it. So... As a surveyor, I ended up going into some sites that were pretty scary. There was a chemical company in Acton called W.R. Grace, 
and pollution became an issue with them, and the state ordered them to clean up their act, and they had to have it spayed, and they were just dumping everything into these lagoons out on the land, and it was seeping into the groundwater and poisoning the whole area. So that was another area that I had to go out to and work on. I worked after that for an, another survey company, and one of the things they pre specialized in was uh, surveying dumps before, so that they could figure out how to cap them and shut them off. So I would be out around the edges of these dumps, shooting the, the topography of it, and the leachate, which is this orange substance that's created by the dumps, would just be leaching out into the groundwaters around it because most of the communities started their dumps in swamps and pieces of land of low value and just started filling them up. And then once all of the chemicals and the toxins and everything in the landfill started to ferment, it forms this orange substance called leachate, and that would uh, leach out of the base of the dump and into the groundwaters and pollute it. There's a spot in Pepperell in the town I live in that's downstream from the dump, which is now closed and capped. But in the middle of the woods, there's a big chain-link fence that goes around this area, and in, in the middle of the fence is this wetland, and the, the water is bright orange from the pollution. And, and the dump's been closed now for about 20 years, and the area is still as orange as, as, as it ever was. Amazing. You know, I, 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 in the 70s, I was relatively young, and I don't think I was aware of um, our ecosystem. I don't think I was aware of when we set our garbage cans out that they were just going and being dumped and nothing was being done with it. I mean, we just dumped and dumped and dumped. And I don't believe that I, as a as a person, was aware of what our manufacturers were doing. And, and I almost wonder if they were aware that it was a long-term damage that was happening, not just an instantaneous, it's in there, it's gone. Uh, the water's going to wash it away. I, I find it in, intriguing that we did all of this, and I wonder if if everyone was as knowing as I was at that point in time. I mean, we're all aware now, but back then, I I I just wonder: did they know what they were doing? Did they know it was long term? Back then, they had no idea what they were doing, and I think, furthermore, they didn't care what they were doing. As uh, long as the big bucks kept rolling in. Just like it is today, everything was profit-driven, the same way the toys come in with China with paint, with lead in the paint, mm -hmm. because it's yes. used the lead paint. That's how this country operated for a long time, that we made things, we manufactured stuff, and when we were done with the toxins and the materials, we just threw it in the river, because the river went to the ocean and disposed of it, and... I even remember being in, in college in the uh, early 70s and having my professor who taught wastewater management. All of the equations they use when you dump water into the ocean has the ultimate effect that the ocean has unlimited dilution capability, which now we come to know that it's not so because slowly and slowly the toxins that the rivers are dumping into the oceans are starting to work their way further and further out and affect fish in the bottoms of the ocean. and uh, yes, I was just going to say, and, and they say, well, how come all these whales are up here being beached and dead? Well, I think that's a pretty good uh, reason right there. Um, so as I started researching the book, I found more and more that I think the insanity that the newspapers kept writing about in the valley was caused by heavy metal poisoning, people ingesting the lead and the other poisons that were in the water. And another bit of information I found was that the Nisitissit River flows up into southern New Hampshire, and if you research online and put in the Asnic State, you'll find that in the early 1800s, southern New Hampshire was considered the Asnic State because they led the production of Asnic of the whole United States, and it would have been right in the area that this river drained. Wow. Amazing. Um, I, I want to go back to Nisitissit, which... Um, I find I find uh the witch to be just just an amazing um person what she went through because of her being a Quaker. Uh, do you did it say in the newspapers uh the articles that you read the time frame that she was there in as much as was she there for months, weeks, years before she, she ran out? She showed up in 1812 um and then 
1820, they accused her, supposedly they accused her of, of her, accused her of murder and put a hot iron to her forehead and branded her forehead with the form of a W for witch. And the legend has it that she cursed the village and fled. But when you look at her curses, um, it's hard to imagine that it's the curse of a witch. I'll read, I have the curses right here in front of me. I'll, I'll read them to you. Oh, cool. It's are are these curses in your book, too? Um, I think I put them in the book. Okay, but cool. This was, this was in a article that was written in 1910 by Florence C. Sibley, and she was writing about the, the village and, and about some of the information that her grandmother had taught her about it. And so uh, I'll read the curses. The first one is that the river would dry up and run away, that the mills and houses would be consumed by fire, that the inhabitants would flee from the village as from pestilence, that in a few decades no one would be living where once a thriving village stood, and that in every home the death angel would make its entry in an unusual way. Now, all the newspaper articles talk about uh, people out there dying, and all it would describe is that they died in an unusual way. Well, when I research heavy metal poisoning, if you die from heavy metal poisoning, you're a psychotic lunatic by the time you die. And back in the 1800s, nobody wanted to admit to lunacy in their families, so I think it was easier for to just say, oh, they died in an unusual way. And the unusual way, I think, unfortunately, was probably the usual way that they all died out there. But the articles all go on talking about um, couples arguing and fighting and insanity coming into the valley and that there was one couple who went insane and they starved their their son to death. And all of this, these actions that don't make sense make sense if you look at the fact that they were suffering from heavy metal poisoning and were starting to become delusionary and psychotic. That's, that is just, you know, that's truly intriguing. When when I, I'm sitting here and I'm, I'm listening to you and I'm, I'm, actually I can just see this village in my mind's eye. I can see... Um, these people, uh, the the man, the husband and wife, arguing and and starving the child for whatever reason. Probably they thought it was uh, God's message or something. Who knows? And and I can I can just see this whole village going to hell in a handbasket. Yeah. And, <laughs> and the the newspaper articles kept talking about every time somebody died out there that they saw a great white death horse before they died. I'll bet they so, did. I've got it. Started writing the, as I started writing the book, it came to me that the Great White Death Horse might be significant of the Indians living there. So what I have is um, the chief and his Great White Stallion that the settlers originally gave them for trading with them, that when they killed the chief and the horse, before the horse and the chief fell into the Nisatissa, the chief turned and cursed him and said, you know, his spirit wouldn't rest until the settlers and the sons and sons of the settlers were all dead. So I have as punishment, the spirits gave the chief punishment for uttering the curse was the fact that he he and his horse had to be present every time one of the original residents of the valley died. And at first he was vengeful and would fly in their face and scare him and petrify him as they were dying. But after vis viewing so many people dying, he was basically burned out with it. And then the, with the last few settlers, uh, he would just stand there with the horse and just quietly watch them die and let them go. And the book with Eb, the guy, in the, the character in the cover who's walking down there, he's walking down to the river and the chief is patiently waiting for him in the mist because he knows that he's the last. Because Eb, that's Eb, correct? Yeah. Eb is yeah. walking into the mist and and the chief is uh, taking him there, obviously. You, um, you mentioned that you live in... Is it Pepperell? Is that correct? Yep, Pepperell. P e p p e r e l l. Another. <laughs> and that is out there. They like lots of consonants in them. <laughs> do but you? I, uh, I, that is that the actual site of this original village that was cursed? The the only structure that remains out there is the schoolhouse shown on my oh, cover, and it is the actual site. I've located the site of the old mill and know where that was, and I've 
located some of the other house sites, and I actually believe I've located the foundation of a house where um, they call this guy the Norwegian, where he lived, and he was really strange also. He, uh, he had probably pretty big boots if he was Norwegian. He used to make peanut butter, peanut butter brittle, and he would give it to the schoolgirls when they walked by. The school was on the other side of him, and the only house with a with a well, because most of them were drawing from the river, the only house with a well was on the other side of the river. So every day the school would send children down to uh, get a bucket of water, and they would alternate girls and boys. And when the girls went by, uh, the Norwegian would be out by the end of his gate, and he'd be giving them peanut butter, peanut butter brittle candy. And when the boys went by, he would ignore them and and act like they didn't exist and and what the, word does one word does that bring to your mind one of the newspaper articles actually talks about a, a young girl going off to work at one of the milk farms and how she never returned and another article in the newspaper talks about when the railroad went through in the late 1800s that they dug up the foundation of an old building and they found the skeletal remains of a young girl buried in it so I have a feeling that she probably succumbed to the evilness of the Norwegian out there. I think probably you're right. I mean, that certainly makes uh, makes sense to me. Um, how how far is the approximately how far it would be the nearest lived-in residence to the original village? Uh, how well, close pe- do people live to that? People who live in in the old schoolhouse that's been converted to a small house, but I've you actually talked to locals who, before the house was uh, fixed back up because it was falling down, who used to go out there and camp, and, and they, some of them said that at night they were petrified to leave the building because they could hear strange cries and moaning outside in the in the woods. And there's several houses down there that are on the rim of this valley that are really haunted. I have a realtor who's a friend, and... She claims to have seen one of the witches in her yard quite frequently, and then she went out one morning, and her horse was brutally mutilated and slotted and carved up. Oh, my. And then two months after that happened, the house in the barn burned to the ground. I think I think that the curse still carries on. Well, so. what I have in my book is that the, there is unrest out there, and the and there is spiritual activity, but the witches that everybody sees out there, I think, are the spirits of the people who were tortured by the heavy metal poisoning, whose bodies were so tormented that their spirits somehow left their bodies before their bodies were dead and were forced to remain in the village. That's just that's just spooky as all get out. And and I do I have a firm belief in in life after death. I don't believe that when we go that that's it. I, I, you know, I think there's a place beyond that that we go to, and I do believe that there are those who are anchored to this earth for some reason, and uh, whatever that I, reason I may be. I believe that because as a land surveyor, I have this unique ability, and it's not there all the time. It's only there once in a while. It comes and goes. It's nothing I can rely on. But I seem to be able to pick up the energy forces of the people who lived on certain pieces of land. I've gone on some job sites where I've felt very welcome and warm, and then I've been on other job sites where I've actually had a feeling of panic and terror on the land. I did a survey in a neighboring town, Havid, Mass., and they used to have uh, shakers who lived there who were different than the Quakers. But I found on the site out in the middle of the woods was this spot where it looked like they might have been carving a stone mill wheel out, but when you look at it again, it almost looks like it was an altar, and that was the creepiest spot I've ever worked on because I swear that I could hear slight voices in the breeze as I worked, you know, like, what you doing? What you hear? What you doing? And I couldn't get off that site fast enough. And then there was just recently another site in Townsend, which is a neighboring town that I went out to. And from the minute I drove up, I had the warmest feeling about this piece of land, that it just was so friendly and, and warm. And I found out later that that was the, one of the first farms in town that was uh, strictly owned by a woman, and that the people who worked for her worshipped her, and she was so kind, and it actually was a was a happy place. Um, do, when you're out here surveying 
Whenever I see surveyors, I always see two. Are you alone or is there somebody uh, with you too? Um, depends on the size of the job. I've had in the past, I had up to 10 employees, but with the economy tanking, surveying is one of the professions right now that's in the toilet. So right now I work alone partially if it's easy and if it's a bigger job. I have a, a guy I know who comes in and I can pay him day to day and he'll come uh-huh. and work one or two days a week, and then if I don't need him for a week or two, it's all right because he's off doing something else. Well, I was just feeling kind of comforted by the thought that, you know, whenever I do see surveyors out working, I almost, I can't even recall seeing just one, and, and I'm, I'm sort of picturing you out here on, on this uh, evil piece of land all by yourself. Were you by yourself there, or did you have a, an associate with you? The last job I did out at North Village, I, were, I was out there by myself because the survey equipment now is fabulous. You set up targets and stationary devices, and um, you can do all the measurements on your own with the information. You don't need to have all of the people that you used to have. A survey crew used to be three or four people, and now a survey crew is generally two people. And if it's a very easy job, they just send one person out because the transit that I have, I can set it up and use in the... Uh, laser mode, I can measure structures and buildings up to 200 feet away without having to send anybody out with a target. It just reflects back off of the the structure and turns an angle and a distance to it. So in a lot of cases, uh, another person would just be dead weight because um, they'd just be standing around while I ran the transit and located everything, and I'd only need them to locate the few things that the signal would have issues in bouncing off of because if the surface is greater than 45 degree angle away from me, then the the laser won't bounce back. It really I, I know that um, my sis, whose name is So Be It, she's in the uh, she's in the uh, chat room. I know she's sitting there just laughing herself silly because when it comes to anything that is even slightly mathematic, I get this look on my face and it's very blank. And I know <laughs> well, she's sitting. She's sitting there, she's oh, yeah, I can just see my sis right now. She must have that blank look on her face. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's funny is I can do the most complex mathematics involved in surveying, but I can't seem to manage to keep my checkbook balanced. <laughs> well, I do that part pretty good. Hey, I have a question from the chat room. Um, Bird Lover uh, wants to know, I am wondering if Rosemary is planning other stories like this in different areas of the country. Um, Not necessarily in different areas of the country, but one thing I found out when I did the research about this, and I am just thrilled about it, and I'm trying to finish up this science fiction book that I started a long time ago. I'm trying to have the resolve to finish it before moving on. Was I found that the town that I grew up in, Littleton, Massachusetts, was the site of a praying Indian community. And in the mid-1600s, the there were 17 of these communities that ringed the Boston area where the Native Americans took on Christianity and formed villages where they prayed to the Christian gods. They gave up their chanting in their old ways and took on the Christian ways. Well, in 1677, when the King Philip's War broke out, and King Philip's was, a, was an Indian chief from Massachusetts, the settlers became leery of these Indians, and they shipped them off to Deer Island, which is in Boston Harbor, and over the first winter they wouldn't send them any food. Half of them starved to death from malnutrition, and in the springtime they sold half of the remaining into slavery. They put them on a ship and sent them down to the, uh, not South America, but those islands, uh, Barbados and down there in the Caribbean, to sell them. And they put them aboard this ship called the Sea Flower, which is actually a sister ship of the Mayflower, and it's now I found the documentation that that ship was actually the first documented American slave ship, and that the slave ship, the Seaflower, was commissioned by Plymouth Plantation, which was where the Pilgrims lived when they when they first came over to the country. So the North tends to be all goody goody about slavery and you know act like we had nothing to do with it. Yet the very first documented slave ship in America came right out of Massachusetts, off the Plymouth Plantation. And the reports talk about them putting 180 of these Indians onto the ship and then sailing them down into the Caribbean to sell them, and nobody wanted to buy them because they knew of the Indian uprisings and thought they were um, troublemakers. So 
there's no history as to what happened to these 180 Indians, as to whether they were sold or whether they were just marched overboard into the ocean. Uh, they just disappeared off the face of the earth. So in the town I grew up in, I always wandered the woods as a child, and I had all these strange feelings in certain places. And it just floored me when I started doing the research and found the actual history of the town and, and some of these areas that I had these strange feelings about actually turned out to be where the, the village was located for these praying Indians. And when I found out that the fate that they were subjected to, I just couldn't believe it. And so I'm dying to write the new book. I'm going to call it um, The Sea Flower, America's First Slave Ship. And I think the premise of the story is the blockbuster. I think that I think that you'd have a real hit there, actually, because uh, it just you know, as I sit here and I listen to you, and I'm sure as my guests are listening to you in the chat room and and on the air, um, we are so into American history, and the Indians right now are um, right up there in the forefront, and I think that with with the premise of what you have, the first slave ship, and that's a fact, and then where we have no actual knowledge of what happened, I'd I'd like to see what you did with the end of this story. I would, you know, I would, I'm sure, you know, you, have you ever had one of those books where you read the first page and then suddenly you're at the last page and you're like, <laughs> oh my God, it's over. I want more. And this, everybody, everybody's been saying that about the Nisitissit Witch, except. The first chapter is slightly slow because it starts off with uh, Ebb and his and what happened to him during the Civil War. But I wanted to try and suck people into the history part of it. So the very first chapter is entirely accurate as to what went on, except that I've plugged my fictitious character in it. When the soldiers, when the men joined the army to go fight the the Civil War when it first started, the very, some of the very first people sent out came from the Lowell and Pepperell area. And when they were crossing Baltimore to, to go down to reinforce Washington, um, the Baltimore was half northern and half southern. The people rioted, and the first people killed in the Civil War were killed in the city of Baltimore while trying to cross the city. As a matter of fact, the very first person to die during the Civil War was the black slave of one of the northern <laughs> captains who, uh, I guess they wouldn't call him a slave because he probably was there voluntarily, but he was the servant of uh, one of the soldiers crossing the city. So it's kind of ironic that the very first death of the Civil War was a was a black servant. It, that is kind of fascinating. Uh, now, I didn't know that, and I'm a Civil War buff. And uh, that came to me simply because when I was 15, I read Gone with the Wind. And I just, you know, that book floored me. Um, and and it gave me that interest in what man does to man. And how could we, how could we do that? How could we enslave another human being, although um, people were not considered human beings at that point in time? But to, to me, when when I was 15, I was, like, appalled. And it gave me that, I'm going to dig into this mindset, which I, I did. I've You know, I've read and I've, I've researched and, and I have my own theories and, and so on and so forth, which are irrelevant at this point in time. But how could we do that? And for you to bring the, the this, this ship... Um, Seaflower? And to play, yeah, Seaflower. I have a friend who was uh, buzzing me on IM, so I'm telling her, showtime, go away. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I just, you know, I never thought of the Indians being enslaved. I thought of uh, our country being taken away from us, because I'm Cherokee, by the way, a oh, big I part of that. me. And um, I wished I had some Indian blood in me. Maybe in a previous life I might have, because I seem to be... Uh, in my later years here, obsessed with the Indians and what's happened to them. Well, it's just, you know, it's real interesting. My my grandmother, and we don't have an awful lot of time, so I'm going to make this really quick. My grandmother was an Indian princess or Cherokee, and my dad was half Cherokee. And uh, my, my 
great-grandmother, my, my grandma's mother, was full-blooded, as was my grandmother, and she, my great-grandmother lived to be 105 and lived in the middle of Los Angeles, and um, very interesting woman. The family pictures I've never been able to get a hold of that were on her wall, and I'm still trying to this day, and uh, they were uh, they were my family with the feathers and the loincloths and and I really want those pictures. So anybody out there in my family that has them, you get me a copy right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> See, I'll try anything. But I just, uh, I never, um, I never thought about enslavement for Indians. And Indians, were actually Indians and East Coast Indians are, are totally different in a sense. The American Indian, the American, uh, Native Americans are actually the very first slaves of America because once we started invading New England and taking the land, uh, a lot of Indians were sold into slavery down in the Caribbean in that area. They they took them down and would sell them. They had a little triangle going as they would bring slaves from Boston down and sell them in the Indies and load the ship up with rum and take it over to uh, Africa where they would load up with black slaves, which they would then bring back to New England and sell them and get the money from them and then load up with uh, a load of Indians and bring them back down to the Caribbean and then load back up with with the lasses because they bring the molasses over to uh, Africa where they, people would make it into liquor. So they had this kind of triangular trade going where every leg of the journey they carried a cargo. That's that's really quite uh, interesting. Corey, I, ha- I have my co-host Corey on... He's putting your website up again in the chat room. I suggest that everybody run right over to uh, Rosemary's website. Let's buy this book. I can't wait to read it. I can't wait. I'm going to order it as soon as we hang up. Everyone who's read it has loved it. I only had one complaint from somebody, and they told me that it wasn't happy enough. It needed some joy in it. And, And, you know, my response was, well, it wasn't a joyous subject. I mean, it's hard to bring levity into something so serious. Well, we could always make them a pair of boots. (laughs) Once people start reading it, I've been told they can't put it down until they finish. Well, I'm very excited about this. And, Rosemary, I just want to say thank you so much. I enjoyed our chat earlier today, and I just love talking to you tonight. Um, This is so interesting, and I'm looking forward to your next book, and that will be your third or fourth book. I don't know what's on your site. I'm going to go over there and find out, and I think you have a uh, new fans here. Well, so if you like writing. If you read Nisitissit and you like it, and you know some way that you can help advance it so I can get some national attention, because my goal is to try and get the book into the hands of somebody who can kick it up to the next level. I've sold over 600 copies in the town that I live in, but uh, I've just about exhausted that research resource, and I need to try and kick it up to the next stage, which would be to somehow try and get national attention. Well, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one thing. Um, I have a very big mouth, and I will talk it up. And, and I guess I can't say I have a big mouth, but cause it sounds kind of weird. But I guess I do, and I, I'd talk it up too. And I have a show, and I could. Would be glad to have you on sometime as well. If people look the book up on Amazon, Amazon has it for seventeen dollars. But if they click around on the Amazon site, there's some other companies that are selling it for eleven dollars and six cents, which is really, I think, quite reasonable because I buy them by lots of a hundred, and I can't seem to get them in my hand for less than twelve dollars and fifty cents. Well, we are just—we're going to do everything we can to promote this book because not only is it a, a good read, I think it's a fascinating piece of history. And I think it tells us that we we need to wake up and take care of Mother Earth. Rosemary, thank you so much. I look forward to seeing all of your future books, and I'll do what I can to make you a big star. Thank you. Thank you, and good night. Everyone, you can purchase the book right here on our profile page on Blog Talk Radio. Just go to the episode page for it. You should see it on there, the book. Purchase it through there and help support our radio show as well as the author. So thank you, everyone. And we're going to have our site up by next week, hopefully, for the radio show. So, hey, serious business, everyone. 
serious business and not so serious. Thank you all for joining us tonight. I'll leave the chat room open for five or ten minutes. Uh, anybody? Uh, ten seconds. And uh, I want to say thank you, Rosemary. You were absolutely fascinating. I enjoyed chatting with you, as I'm sure all of our guests enjoyed listening. Thank you and good night. You've just listened to an IYR The Classics broadcast. Learn more about IYR The Classics at theclassics.itsyourradio.com. It's your radio, the future of radio. www.itsyourradio.com.